clean line design that sets it apart from the lookalike. Business is built on data, facts, and figures. It's also made up of some of the most fascinating stories the world has known. What makes business tick? What are the stories we can find in their failures and victories? Get ready to find out what some of today's leaders were thinking right now on Business Disrupted. Here is your host, Ted Gavin. Welcome to Business Disrupted. What do airline crashes, medical devices, Boy Scouts, Purdue Pharmaceuticals, the Roman Catholic and Apostolic Church, the makers of various drugs, and the Ford Motor Company have in common? They've all been the subject of mass tort litigation, a, well, we may call it efficient way of getting justice to large numbers of victims. We're getting into the complex world of plaintiff's lawyers and mass tort litigation today. Our guest is Ed Niger, co-managing partner and leader of the mass tort litigation practice at national litigation law firm ASK LLP. Ed, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Ted. I'm really excited to be here. Oh, great to have you. So, you know, the, 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 the first year of law school definition of a tort, since I guess we should start with what is a tort, but the first year law school definition is it's a, it's a civil wrong as opposed to a criminal wrong, other than a breach of contract that causes a party to suffer some loss or harm resulting in legal liability for the defendant. But that's a first year law school definition. Ed, what, what is a tort? Wow, that really that took me back. <laughs> I actually I actually loved uh, torts class, and I got my highest grade in torts. And then I always thought it was ironic that I ended up becoming a bankruptcy lawyer and not a tort lawyer. And and now I'm kind of making up for that by by wading into the to the mass tort field. But essentially, a tort is, uh, like you said, a, a civil harm where one person caused an injury to another that resulted in monetary damage or non-monetary, non-monetary damage uh, that can only be compensated with, with money. So sometimes money is uh, the only means of compensation, even though that wasn't the, the form of damage. And, and there are different types of torts, but... But really, when we're getting into the realm of mass torts, no, no one, you know, no group of 50,000 people are suing because of trespass to land. They're, they're suing because of you know, negligence, the, the, most, the most commonly litigated tort, or product liability, the, the second most common liability, commonly litigated tort. How do these, how do these cases arise? So... Um Mass tort is really a, an offspring of our uh, corporate capitalist system, right? The way corporations work is instead of having uh, 10,000 people own 10,000 bakeries and sell bread to their 10,000 neighborhoods, you have one big mega company making 10,000 pieces of bread and selling it all over. Same thing with soda, same thing with airlines, right? Not everyone can afford to fly anywhere and not everyone can afford their own plane, but you have a company and you pool investors resources and you get a plane and then a whole bunch of people can now fly. So uh, as a result of having uh, companies service or provide products to thousands, thousands and thousands of people at a time, when that company uh, provides a defective service or product, then thousands and thousands of people uh, get injured. And those injuries are somewhat similar. Uh, the fault is 
somewhat similar. The causation is somewhat similar. Similar, and uh, that gave rise to the mass torts uh, practice area of law, where you will represent hundreds, if not thousands, of plaintiffs who have suffered not identical harm because that would be a class action, but uh, harm that has similar or overlapping features, uh, most particularly uh, the co- the fault and causation of the defendant. So, so the system that that creates the efficiency that makes it possible for people to to have affordable bread, affordable cars, affordable air travel, the 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 reciprocal side of that is when something goes wrong, the mass tort system provides efficiency for the victims of whatever went wrong to be able to pursue an efficient path path to remuneration or justice. I think that's a great way of putting it. So you you mentioned class action, and, and I want to talk a little bit about what the difference is between mass tort litigation and class action litigation. You You started talking about how in class action litigation, everybody has the same exact type of damage. And in or, or experiences the same type of harm, whereas in mass tort, it's just a lot of people experiencing harm from a common origination point, but the harm that they experience may be different. That's true. Uh, you, you, I mean, <laughs> much more eloquent than I am. I kind of, <laughs> <laughs> I like the way you reframe everything I say so well. Um, so yes, that's a hundred percent true, and it's something that uh, I was always I. Um, uneducated about, I didn't really understand, you know, what, when is something a class action and when is something a mass tort. But um, as I've come to learn, a class action is when everyone suffered a very, either an identical or very similar harm. For example, a data breach. Everyone's data was breached in the same way by the same person and everyone suffered the exposure of their data, even though one may suffer a little more or suffer a little less. Um, It's still the same actual tort. So it's easy to do a class action and represent one person. The difference between a class action and a mass tort is in a class action, you represent one plaintiff who is the representative for all the other people who may have been harmed in this way. All those other people can still get some compensation, even if they never hired a lawyer, never filed a claim. The class representative will be representing them. A mass tort is when People have suffered injury, personal injury. Uh, Those are always different. And there are also rules relating to uh, personal injury or property damage that require jury trials, things like that. For example, PG&E was um, property damage, wildfire damage. No two damages are the same. So that's where you have a mass tort and not a class action. And everyone has to file their own claim, file their own lawsuit. If you don't file your own lawsuit, you may waive your rights, except in certain cases where there's a future claims rep representing your rights in bankruptcy. And that's something that we can get to. But uh, in in a mass tort, everyone is filing a claim for their own unique damages, even though there are common uh, attributes to the case, including uh, who the tort fees are is and the uh, and the causation. So for for a part, so for mass tort involving, for example, an airline crash that was due to the negligence of of the airline, the the passengers, the well, the the victims' families will file 
a number of different lawsuits, each one particularized to their individual victim. So for example, the future earnings of the passenger in seat 1A and the few would be very different from the prospective future earnings of the passenger in 2C. And so you've got two different bases for damages. One might have kids, one might not. So those are individual lawsuits as opposed to um, all shareholders in AT&T stock had the, the same damages resulting from some hypothetical error in reporting. And so they're all one claim distributed over a lot of people. Is that, is that the, the, the big difference? That's exactly right. And I, I wish I thought of the airline uh, of the AT&T stock exam, example, because that's a great example where you know what the damage is. Everyone suffered the same amount of damage or it's easy to just quantify it. So mechanically, how does this, how does this work? How many law firms are involved in class action litigation for the plaintiffs versus how many law firms are involved in mass tort litigation for the plaintiffs? So, um, I, I don't know how many law firms are involved in a class action or a mass tort because each class action and a mass tort is different. I will say that class actions are, are what happens is you may have a whole bunch of law firms each getting a lead plaintiff, right? And then they'll go before the judge and every law firm will raise their hand and say, judge, make my client the lead plaintiff. And the other law firm will say, make my client the lead plaintiff. And, mm -hmm. and I don't, I don't do class actions, So I, I can't say this for sure, but I suspect that if you represent the lead plaintiff, you make a lot more money. And then the judge um, will uh, decide on, on a number of factors uh, who the lead plaintiff should be. And that's how class actions work. Mass torts is a totally different uh, ball game that I can uh, speak with a little bit more authority, although not as much authority as I, I, I wish I had. But uh, in, in a mass tort, you will have a whole bunch of law firms uh, representing clients file claims uh, at, in various courts all across the United States, both uh, state and federal. And then the defendant, and it should be noted that uh, the corporations who are defendants actually benefit from the mass tort um, multi-district uh, litigation model under the JPML, which stands for the Joint um, forget what Procedures or Joint Panel yeah. Mass Litigation, something like that. Um, th that that allows for the creation of what's called the multi uh, MDL, multi-district litigation, where all the uh, cases, at least in federal court, are removed. And a lot of times the cases in state court are also removed because the defendant can find a way to get it removed to state court. And once it's in state court, then it just goes into the MDL, which will go before one judge. And that judge will appoint leadership, uh, plaintiff PEC, plaintiff's executive committee, and other leadership committees to steer the litigation in situations where there are common issues of fact and issues of law. Uh, so there will be a committee to analyze the science of, say, a particular drug that was recalled to see whether it does or does not cause cancer. And uh, there will be teams to do the depositions. So like that, each, every, each and every uh, plaintiff doesn't have to do everything uh, from scratch. Uh, so they'll have one team appointed by the court in the MDL uh, doing the work of all the plaintiffs. And, of course, the lawyers representing uh, the lawyers on leadership who do all the work on behalf of everyone 
will get what's called a common benefit uh, payment. So they'll get a percentage of all the of the legal fees that all the quote unquote, I don't want to say call them free riders, but um, of all the attorneys who benefited from the work that the attorneys um, leadership did. And that's an efficient way to uh, handle a mass tort so that the defendants don't have to sit for 10,000 different depositions. Right. It creates efficiency in the judicial system. Right. So how, what you've described is, you know, attorneys with various numbers of clients kind of jockeying for position to be on the inside because there's a direct relationship between how inside and how close to the committee they are and what their ultimate compensation could be and how much control they have. How does that work? Is it by number of plaintiffs or are they selected by diversity of plaintiffs? What's the, what's the, how does the black box work or is it truly a black box? So we're talking about in the mass tort context, because as I said, in the class action context, I'm not really sure. But in the mass tort context, it's uh, the judge who uh, has the MDL will decide he or she will ask for applications to be on leadership. And in those applications, you will write about how many clients you have. So that's one factor. Uh, your particular experience, have, have you ever litigated this kind of case? That's another factor. And uh, most recently, uh, I think for the benefit of the bar, judges will look at uh, things like diversity uh, based on uh, gender and uh, sexual orientation. They're trying to make it less of a, you know, old white man's uh, club, which mm-hmm. I think is a good thing. How many clients will a typical, might a typical law firm have in a given piece of mass tort litigation? Well, there's all, all different kinds of mass torts. So on, on one end of the spectrum, there's uh, a, a limited amount of potential plaintiffs out there, for example, in the Elmiron litigation, which is a drug that apparently causes um, macular degeneration or something like that, blindness. Uh, there, there are only that many people out there that uh, suffer this injury or have taken that drug. Mm-hmm. So in that case, if someone has several hundred, that's considered a lot. On the other hand of the spectrum, you have uh, cases like Roundup, which is the, the weed killer and, you know, basically ruined television for me because you can't watch cable TV without seeing a, a commercial for Roundup uh, by the lawyers, not by, right. not by Roundup. Um, so, you know, there, if you have a couple of hundred uh, clients, that's, it's not going to, it's not going to make you a force of any sort because there are firms that have tens of thousands and ultimately there are hundreds of thousands of plaintiffs. So how, how many is a lot is all relative as, as the famous saying goes, you know, uh, if, if I had two hairs on my head, that's a little, but if I had two hairs in my soup, that's a lot. So, <laughs> so okay. You get well, it. We're, we're talking with litigator Ed Niger about the ins and outs of mass tort litigation. If you have questions, tweet them to us at B-I-Z Disrupted or email them to comments at disrupted.business. And if you're joining the show on Facebook Live, put your questions right in the comments. What? So you, you, you've talked about numbers of clients. How do you get clients? How do mass tort litigation attorneys get clients? Oh, so there's all different ways of 
of getting clients, which I've learned, uh, the most common way is advertising, just simple, simple, simple as that. Um, in in Purdue, uh, in, at least in the beginning, when I started representing victims of the opioid epidemic and victims of Purdue, I literally went from city to city, town to town, and I met with uh, through organizations like uh, Team Sharing, who, which specialize in helping families uh, with the grieving process, whatever whatever that entails, if someone lost a loved one uh, to the to the disease of addiction, uh, whether because of an opioid or not, uh, they would help that family, which is usually in, in shock, even though a lot of times they know it could happen, but they just uh, can't deal with it when it ultimately happens. Uh, they provide, in the worst cases, money to bury their deceased loved one. Uh, and I've developed a relationship with uh, them. Uh, I've developed a relationship with Ryan Hampton from The Voices Project, which works to end the stigma associated with addiction. And this is before the pandemic. So until the pandemic, you know, at least once a week or twice a week, I'd be on the road and go to town halls and explain to them that uh, they may have rights against Purdue and their rights may be waived if in the bankruptcy, this is before the bankruptcy, but we knew the bankruptcy was coming if they don't take action to protect it. It's pretty much like, you know, Aaron, Aaron Bronkovich. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is all before I knew a lot about mass torts. That was really my first foray into mass torts. And, um, you know, there are, there's a lot of advertising that could be done on, on radio, on TV, on Facebook, on Instagram. I mean, it's funny. It's not funny. It's just, I don't know what to make of it, but um, we just moved and I needed a a very narrow lawnmower. And I just made a note in my notes, you know, I should look up, I should try to find a lawnmower. Next thing you know, I'm getting um, Instagram ads for lawnmowers. So, So it's really amazing with the internet how easy it is to reach people uh, on a very particular particularized way uh, for whatever it is you're trying to sell, including legal services. Right. And that's the wave of the future. When, when putting together these groups of, of plaintiffs and, and, and identifying them, you know, lawyers are subject to, to rules of professional conduct. And, and I believe all but one state, I think Maine is the only state that doesn't have a prohibition on solicitation. Um, there are, you know, lawyers can't approach clients directly and say, Hey, you should represent me because I can do thus and so for you without extensive limitations and extensive disclosures if it's done in writing. So these ads are, are, are usually just a, you know, kind of a glimpse of an idea followed by pages and pages of, of, um, of disclaimers? I don't. I, I think these companies that do the advertising have lawyers on staff that make sure that whatever the ad is complies with the attorney advertising rules in those states. Some states sure. say that you have to identify, you know, who is the law firm behind this ad. Mm-hmm. Some states say it has to say attorney advertising. Uh, most of the rules around solicitation, at least that I'm aware of, relate to uh, mail, hard mail solicitation. Mm-hmm. I don't think they've caught up, the ethical rules have caught up 
uh, fully to the di digital age yet. I think they're they're evolving as the digital capabilities yes. Uh, yes. evolve. And I mean, Facebook didn't start doing ads until a couple of years ago. Neither did Instagram. Well, now you could do ads on Facebook and Instagram. Okay, how does how do the rules translate to that? Um, so I, I wouldn't say it's a bit of a wild west because there are some rules, but um, I, I think that there is less, they're less established. Uh, right. But I, I still, I still would advise anyone who advertises digitally, and certainly I do, is to hire a, a ethics lawyer to approve whatever it is you're doing, um, because you don't want to be the one that uh, is made an example out of. And and the other thing that that I I remember from my time doing a lot of uh, a lot of teaching on on lawyers professional ethics, the people who are judging whether you or not you behaved ethically are not the people who are at the cutting edge of technology, which which leads to some absurdities like an Ohio Supreme Court decision I don't know ten years ago that said that a text message was not a real time electronic communication for purposes of, of how their state defines solicitation. There's nothing more real time and electronic and communicative than a text message. But right. you know, you don't, you don't control what the people who are deciding what you did know about what you did. So you have to, yeah, you have to be very careful, only hire trusted vendors who have been around for a long time and have a reputation in the marketplace. Uh, there's a whole mass toward industry, you know, believe it or not. And, and it's like any industry, you know, there's, there's vendors and there's good vendors and bad vendors and there's con there's conferences and new things that are happening. It's actually really interesting and a great, great learning experience for me. You know, I, I remember last year in 2020, probably around August or September as, as we were coming up to the deadline to file claims for abuse survivors in the Boy Scouts of America bankruptcy, my Facebook feed became so saturated with ads from uh, from law firms looking for potential clients and, and claimants in that case, that it, it was as though every third posting was an ad from a different law firm with, you know, kind of the same stock photography, the same stock language, just looking to to identify people who had been abuse survivors so they could get their claims in before the deadline. And all those law firms, it's funny, it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting dynamic of the mass torch world. You can have like five law firms hire the same advertiser. Right. Uh, so uh, it's just really interesting. And sometimes when we do advertising online, my attorneys remind me, Ed, don't click on the ad because sometimes I'm curious. <laughs> I want to see what an ad looks like. And they're like, don't click on the ad because once you click on that ad, now, now Instagram knows that you're a clicker and, you know, they're going to they're gonna keep on shoving yeah. those ads in your face until it's open season on, uh, on, on Ed Niger's Instagram feed. <laughs> yeah. Don't click on an ad that you're, that you're just only mildly curious about. That's what I've learned. Good. Good to know. Before we, we take a break, I want to talk a little bit about what the big mass tort cases are right now. So what are the, what are, what are the big ones? In bankruptcy or outside of bankruptcy? Well, let's do both because we're going to talk a little bit about bankruptcy and how mass torts play in bankruptcy cases when we come back from the break. Okay. So in bankruptcy, you have Purdue Pharma, uh, Boy Scouts, 
you, we just had uh, PG&E, that was uh, 80,000 uh, homes, lives destroyed by uh, mass wildfires. There aren't any, there's Malincroft, which is another opioid. Um, outside of bankruptcy, the two mega ones are the 3M earplugs and the Roundup, Roundup that's huge. Mm-hmm. And then the talc is always, the talc is not going anywhere. That's like the new asbestos. So any, any, any talc claim against J&J. And, and interestingly, um, J&J has now brought up allegations of irregularities in the voting in, on the bankruptcy plan for one of their talc ingredient suppliers. And they're, they're, trying, to, uh, they're trying to drag that bankruptcy open against the, uh, the wishes of pretty much everybody involved at the debtors level, Ameris, Talc America. Um, but, but now that's, that, that's rearing its ugly head again. So it's, it's bankruptcy leading, it's mass torts leading to bankruptcy, leading to mass torts, leading to bankruptcy again. <laughs> Where does it end? I know. That's an interesting observation. And the mass tort bankruptcy convergence is just getting deeper and stronger. Yeah, and um, it is it is also resulting in um, diminishing returns because the fast pace of bankruptcy has a tendency to bring out more lawyers and more plaintiffs. So, the benefits that insurance companies and debtors thought they might get um, may still be there, but it also is not without its uh, downside. And and. <laughs> Typically, if you're a company that is doing something that gives rise to mass tort litigation, you're probably not a small company, which means you're hiring, you've got a lot of needs. So you're hiring a big law firm, probably a big national or international law firm. And the longer your bankruptcy case goes on, you're paying bigger and bigger bills. So there's really no economic efficiency in this process other than being able to to channel all the litigation into one place, but you're, if you're the company, you're still paying a lot of money, right? Oh, without a doubt. Uh, PG&E legal fees were, I think close to, or a little above a billion dollars. Purdue Pharma is at uh, half a billion easily. And uh, the Boy Scouts, which is not, that old and certainly not far evolved in terms of where it is in its, its bankruptcy life cycle uh, is over a hundred million dollars. So uh, well, a hundred million dollars for a bankruptcy case that is only 15 months old seems pretty efficient. <laughs> pretty, uh, yeah. You know, there are asbestos cases that have been going for 25 years now. That's true. That's true. Although the judge did admonish the parties in boy Scouts that, Maybe it's just because the case hasn't gotten anywhere, and that's what she was upset about. Yeah. Well, we are talking with Ed Niger, leader of the Mass Torts Practice at the law firm ASK LLP. If you have questions, tweet them to us at B-I-Z Disrupted or email them to comments at disrupted.business. We're going to take a short break to hear some messages from our sponsors. Stick around, and we'll be right back. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. 
Gavin Solmanese is the experienced leader for complex financial matters, restructuring, and litigation consulting. Whatever your situation, we have the ability and know-how to restore troubled companies to profitability and growth. We've successfully completed financial advisory engagements for hundreds of companies that have gone on to renewed health and success. No matter the size or complexity of the case, our clients always work directly with senior professionals and receive exceptional work product. We know that asking the right questions is always the first step in defining the true problem. Generating alternative solutions and finding a clear path forward is what we do. To us, it's all about results. What you do next is what counts. When there are tough decisions and hard choices to make, you need smart, strategic people beside you. Choose the team who never stops working until your problem, dispute, or financial crisis is resolved. Visit Gavin Solmanese at GavinSolmanese.com or call us at 302-655-8997. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. You are listening to Business Disrupted. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to contact at disrupted.business. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. If you have questions, tweet them to us at B-I-Z Disrupted or email them to comments at disrupted.business. If you're joining the show on Facebook Live, put your questions in the comments or just say hello. We are talking about the complex case of mass tort litigation and the pursuit of justice in wholesale form. Ed, you were saying during the break that you've recently expanded the practice and you've got uh, somebody heading up the mass tort litigation platform now. Yes, we hired a, a, a really talented attorney by the name of Troy Tating from the law firm of Robbins Kaplan. And when you have 80,000 clients, you need uh, someone to steer that ship, and uh, that is Troy. So I just wanted to um, make sure that uh, he, is, he is mentioned as the, the head of the Mass Torts Department. Well, duly noted. Um, you just mentioned 80,000 clients. How, 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 how does any law firm have 80,000 clients? How, how do you manage 80,000 clients? So that is the 64,000. That's the $80,000 question. <laughs> so, so because I really didn't know much about uh, mass torts when I was on the tort committee in PG&E. And you had all these lawyers representing 10,000, 20,000 it, it just didn't make sense to me. And they were small law firms. And then what I learned was uh, the little trick of the mass torts bar is everybody teams up with everybody. So you'll have one firm that has a thousand, another firm that has 3000 and then they'll aggregate it. It's almost, I don't want to call it a, a pyramid scheme, but 
because that 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 has a negative connotation. But um, what happens is uh, all the law firms all across the nation keep on on retaining the clients and then moving it up the food chain uh, for various tasks where where there is one or two firms on top that that lead lead effort and represent officially all the thousands and thousands, but they're not, for example, going to be working up all the claims. Uh, so for example, in the bankruptcy of Purdue, uh, there are you know, 130,000 uh, uh, personal injury creditors and represented probably by tens, if not hundreds of law firms. And a lot of those law firms moved that up the chain uh, through various inter interceding and intermediary intermediary law firms that did not have bankruptcy counsel, so we would represent them in the bankruptcy. But clearly, we do not uh, work up sixty thousand claims, or you know, are not in contact with big sixty thousand clients. We'd be in contact with their lawyers, and those lawyers will be in contact with the lawyers beneath them, who will ultimately be in contact with the client. And that's one thing I've learned about how the mass tort bar works in case you were ever wondering how it, how it is that one law firm could represent, you know, 20,000 clients without dropping the ball. The answer is they don't, they're not the only law firm doing it. When one law firm represents 20,000 clients, there's probably another hundred law firms in that mix uh, also working with those clients and sharing the fees. Okay. Okay. What are the economics of a mass tort firm? Who's who's fronting the expenses for this litigation? So every firm is different and every litigation is different. Uh, that's another thing I've learned. Um, there are litigation funders, right? That for a user's interest rate will be more than happy to help you fund a litigation. Uh, there are a lot of firms who... Uh, are established and made their money early on and now fund their own litigation. And it really just depends on the firm, whether it needs money, doesn't need money. Even if it, even if it does, doesn't need money, it may make sense to um, fund, fund it because having money in the bank also costs money. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and, and, and then there's all different kinds of funding, right? There's recourse and non-recourse. So if you can get funding on a non-recourse basis, then that may make sense. So it really depends on the litigation and on the law firm. And it occurs to me that this is, that mass tort litigation in this regard is, is essentially the same as regular tort litigation, which is often driven by contingency fee uh, compensation models for the law firms. The, the lawyer who's looking at taking this case is thinking to themselves, am I going to get my investment of time back? Am I going to ever, ever see a dollar from this case? How does that consideration work when you're dealing with mass tort litigation? What's, what's an attorney's diligence about how long it's going to take to realize a liquidity event from a mass tort case? How, how do you get out? So, so one of the big, you know, my partner, Joe. So one of, one of, one of the biggest issues that I have with Joe and Troy is I want to get in on everything, you know. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is this is a million dollar case. Let's start advertising for clients. And then Troy's like, well, wait a minute, take a step back, think about it. You know, you have this issue with causation and this issue with jurisdiction, and 
the litigation will take six years. Is this something that you really want to get involved in, especially if you're going to finance, finance it? You know, the financing on six years is, is a pretty penny. It's almost double, double the investment. Right. So everything depends on the litigation. But one of the, one of the things I've learned, and, and I speak to the leading mass tort lawyers in the country just to get advice, Michael Watts, Jerry Parker, I'll just sit down with them and, and just try to learn. And they're more than happy to impart uh, their wisdom to me. And the one thing that uh, they all said is, uh, it's good to diversify. It's good to have a, a, a wide variety of of litigations, but you really need to do your homework because you know the things that makes the, make make the news are the big payouts. What doesn't make the news are all the cases that fizzle out and don't go anywhere, but where people have invested their life savings in building up. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm grateful to have uh, partners like Joe who keep my feet to the ground and Troy who knows mass torts uh, to to help us choose uh, the litigations we get involved in wisely. But you hit the nail on the head. Well, and, and, and you you gave an interesting example. You know, this is a case that we could we could get a, we could earn a million dollars on this case, but it'll take six years. If you just look at the time value of money, that's one hundred sixty six thousand dollars a year. And, and so the consideration has to be, is there some, is there any other thing that I could be doing with the time I'm going to put into this case over the next six years that would earn the firm more than $166,000 a year? And if the exactly. answer to that is yes, then you're not taking on a client. You're being altruistic. Correct. Okay. What does, I mean, there are different types of mass tort suits. There are little ones, there are big ones, but if you look at the big ones that are out today, what do they cost? To litigate, what are the what are the costs of these these large mass tort cases in fees and expenses just to get to a verdict if you ever get there? Tens, if not hundreds, of millions of dollars. If you're looking at cases like Roundup against um, uh, the German uh, pharmaceutical company uh, that owns Mallinckrodt, no, the one that owns Roundup. Who owns? Oh, who owns? Um, Monsanto, isn't it? Uh, yeah, my, 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 yeah, Monsanto. Um, you know, Monsanto has is one of the richest companies and uh, will spend hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars to defend the reputation of one of their most profitable products. Right. So if it's going to cost that much money to defend, you should expect to at least have to invest that amount of money to pursue because they're not just going to uh, fold and write a check. So it, it's going to cost millions and millions of hours, which ultimately translates to money, and in many cases, deferred money. But it's in the tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. And that's why the law firms on leadership get a kicker. In addition to their uh, contingency fee, they get a uh, common benefit fund because ultimately it is their hours uh, that were invested and not necessarily all the all the lawyers on the bottom of the triangle. I'll call it a triangle, not a pyramid, because pyramid has a bad, right. bad, bad connotation. On bottom of the triangle. Um, so, so the lawyers on the top of the triangle really have invested so much uh, time and resources and opportunity costs, which is what you said. You know, they could be spending their time and money on something else. 
so, so the Common Benefit Fund is designed to compensate them not only for their time, but for their risk. Um, we have a question from Facebook Live. Tom asks, with multiple law firms working together and aggregating tens or hundreds of thousands of clients, are there any ethical issues that mass tort lawyers need to be particularly attuned to? There are lots of ethical issues that mass tort lawyers need to be attuned to. And every mass tort firm and we do should have a, a an ethics lawyer on, on speed dial. And, and we do. Um, the, the big issue is communicating with all the clients that you represent. You know, you can't necessarily say, well, oh, I thought I had co-counsel. Uh, they're also your clients. Mm -hmm. So you have to create efficient mechanisms for communicating with them both ways for you to let them know what's going on in their case and for them to let, let you know what's going on, on, on their mind. So there are a lot of, um, like, like anything complex where there's a lot of money at stake, there are going to be ethical, uh, pitfalls and, uh, you have to be wise to, uh, make sure that you don't don't fall into any of them. Uh, I have been lucky in Purdue to have teamed up with a woman by the name of Ann Andrews from the law firm of Andrews and Thornton. And she has uh, been doing this for the last 40 or 45 years. And she has been uh, my guide in terms of uh, what, where the landmines might be and how to avoid them but uh, the landmines are, are definitely there. And I can tell you that defense counsel is waiting for you to step on it. You, you, mentioned, um, you mentioned a common, a common problem, which is staying in touch with your clients. It is, I, I suppose, an editorial note that I'll just drop in, but failure to keep a client informed or failure to respond to client is the single most frequent cause for Play for, for clients filing ethics complaints with state bars in the United States. It, it's, it, you know, returning the phone call or returning the email and keeping the client informed is incredibly important. And it generates a, a tremendous amount of ethics paperwork in, uh, in common practice it, out, not including not, not just specific to mass torts, but just industry wide. Um, you were talking at, about expenses and, and the spiff that lead counsel will get um, or, or committee counsel will get um, for having fronted a lot of expenses. What is the general compensation scheme for attorneys who are involved in mass tort litigation? And, and I'm thinking at the top of the mountain as well as at the bottom of the mountain. So I think by law, it can be no more than 33 to 40% in, in most states. Uh, so... I would say, so it's maximum 40% if you're doing everything soup to nuts, which mm -hmm. most law firms don't do soup to nuts. One law firm gets the client, holds the client's hand, another law firm may be involved in the discovery. Mm -hmm. If a case goes into bankruptcy, another law firm does the bankruptcy. I would say it's between uh, 10 and 30%, depending on how much work you're actually doing. And, 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 and how is that filtering down the, the funnel? You know, the, the, the folks at the top who are there in the negotiations, in the settlement discussions are getting some portion and then a much smaller portion flows down to the parties that are closest to the, the, the individual plaintiffs. Is, is that how it works? They, so they they're, they're, know how to split the pie? It's, it's split different every time. There's no formula. But there are, there, there are two most important parts in being a lawyer. 
right? And you can't have one. If you just have one without the other, then it's worthless, right? And that's what makes a good partnership, including my partnership with Joe. One is getting the client. That's a very important part, right? The other very important part is delivering for the client, winning. Everything in between is important, but is not what it's all about. Mm -hmm. If you don't get the client, then you don't have a practice. If you don't win, then you're not going to have a practice for very long. Right. So in the cycle of mass torts, the lawyer who got the client gets a, a meaningful share of the fees. And the lawyer who ultimately does the work to win gets a meaningful share in the fees. And everyone else in between will get something, but it's not going to be a meaningful share of the fees. One of the challenges with litigation against the pharmaceutical company is that as, as, as tort law has, um, has developed and as pressures for tort reform have, have taken hold, there have been a lot of states that have put in place shields from liability for pharmaceutical manufacturers. And there, there are reasons why, you know, we can couch it in terms of public policy favoring drugs being as inexpensive as possible. So you, you know, they're regulated by the FDA. So you keep the, the company's litigation costs low by limiting claims that people can bring against them. Against them. Um, some jurisdictions disallow design defect liability. Some allow negligence only. How does, how does this play into the mass tort landscape if just out of the gate, you've got, you know, you've got victims everywhere, but Indiana has decided, oh no, we don't sue drug companies here. So it's very nice of you to couch it in terms of efficiencies and contributions that the drug companies uh, make. I, I prefer to couch it in terms of political corruption. Uh, the big pharma is one of the most powerful uh, uh, forces not only on Capitol Hill, but in state houses all across the country. In my personal opinion, they are primarily responsible for the opioid crisis because when bills would come before legislative bodies across the country that would, for example, require doctors to enter into a database if they prescribe opioids and then check that database before they prescribe opioids so that uh, pill mills don't don't occur. Uh, or uh, if a bill came before a state house that would limit the amount of opioids that could be prescribed after, for example, a surgery. Those bills not only were voted down, but they never even came up for a vote because they died in committee. And the reason they died in committee is because Big Pharma, through all these different nonprofit organizations and um, and super PACs and uh, industry advocacy organizations, uh, controlled these politicians on every level, and mm -hmm. they made certain that the bills wouldn't even see the light of day. But so, so I appreciate your generosity to that. But my view <laughs> well, is much, it is the much, reason much, that much they more claim. sinister. What <laughs> it, public policy is the reason that they claim it, right, th these things need to be there. It is not the reason they need to be there. Right, big pharma has a has a hold on on politicians, un, unlike any other industry that I could think of. 
because it's because it's bipartisan. Right. Um, and the beauty of it is, or the evil genius of it is, that most of the money can't be traced. It's not like, you know, Purdue or McKesson, you know, writes a check to uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren or Mitch McConnell. You know, that's all public. 90% of the money that flows there goes through super PACs and not-for-profits and advocacy groups that, you know, don't have to be reported, will never see the light of day. Right. And so to answer your question, how does how does um, the laws protecting pharmaceutical companies um, uh, affect mass torts? In, in the opioid litigation, it, it doesn't really affect it because the the states themselves are suing uh, the opioid manufacturers. So uh, all we're doing is uh, also suing, and they can't say, "Well, we could sue, but you can't sue." That would be kind of Although nothing ever surprises me when it comes to politics, but they haven't done but, that yet. But that is, and that is a similar model to the tobacco litigation in the '90s, isn't it? I mean, that was 46 state attorneys general bringing Medicaid lawsuits against the tobacco manu- tobacco manufacturers. Correct. Correct. They're so trying you're, to. Re- so you're yeah, piggybacking on board the states. There's there's already a train running down the tracks. Correct. I don't want to use the term. You know, we're piggybacking because we're 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 doing our own work. Okay. Um, and a lot of the negotiation has to do with um, where the money goes. Does the money go to the states or does the money go to the victims? Uh, so I don't want to use the term piggybacking, but we're dual tracking. I think is a, probably a better a fair better point. Term. Okay. What what role do mass tort cases and mass tort attorneys play in ensuring consumer safety? I think they're at the front lines of ensuring consumer safety. That's the only, the only incentive that corporations understand, understand is money. They just think in terms of dollars and cents. And even when they uh, become altruistic and start getting involved in social justice, uh, that's also only because it affects their bottom line. For example, if you look at BMW and Coca-Cola, uh, all their American social media stuff had, you know, Happy Pride Month, right? But if you go to their Middle Eastern pages, it, it says nothing about Happy Pride Month. Right. So, so the only thing companies understand is money. And if they could, they would, they, they don't really care about protecting people. So if if they can skirt the line and make a little more money, even though some people get hurt, if they could, they would. The only thing stopping them are the mass tort lawyers who give them an economic disincentive to, to hurt people. The economic, the mass tort lawyers explain to the companies, we know you love money, but if you hurt people, you're not going to make money. So don't hurt people. And that's the only thing they understand. They're not afraid of politics. They own the politicians. So it's, it's a, there's a philosophical and political debate about business regulation. You know, the, the, the anti-regulatory community will say that regulations are bad because businesses should be trusted to govern themselves. And, you know, they're, they, they want to do the right thing because that will increase their revenues and, and get the market share. And the pro-regulatory community says businesses would hook us all up to the matrix and sell us out in a second flat if it meant reducing expenses by 50% and making more profit regardless of how much revenue they made they they earned 
And it, it sounds like what you're saying is far more on the on the side of there needs to be this 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 counterweight to profit maximization for the company. And that counterweight is the mass tort bar and the likelihood of being sued and being held responsible for the bad things that they do in pursuit of profit. I I think that's fair. Um, I I don't know. um, I I don't want my comments to be interpreted as I think um, regulation is the answer because I think regulation comes from uh, politicians for the most part, which are owned by those companies. So it would be trying to clean a dirty floor with a dirty mop. So I don't want to say regulation is the answer, but I do think that uh, the mass torts bar provides a very important um, service to uh, the general public in that it, it um, causes the companies to not harm the general public. Right. Because of what will happen if they do. Exactly. It provides a consequence, uh, a money consequence. Sure. How does technology factor into running and managing a mass torts practice? So that's a great question. And one that I, the answer to which I think about all the time, because I always tell Troy and I tell Joe, I want to do things different. You know, I want to, I don't want to be the mass tort firm or the personal injury firm. We also do personal injury now, at least in Minnesota. We, you know, hopefully will expand that, that just, you know, does the billboards. And I'm sure billboards are good, you know, 1-800-INJURED. I'm sure that's great. But I want to think outside the box. There's so many new technologies, um, uh, AI, that is out there for all aspects. Number one, for managing uh, large quantities of clients efficiently. Number two, for managing, uh, for for advertising, for hiring, for uh, working up claims. You know, technology makes everything so much more efficient. And I always tell my partners that uh, I want to do things different. And the way I want to do things different is to utilize the latest in all different technologies. And we have some really, really cool um, ways to get in touch with clients, both uh, before they're retained, after they're retained, to work up the claims. There's And there's a lot of collaboration among the Mass Torts Bar about how to best uh, leverage uh, the latest technology. But uh, I, I think it's the future, like everything. I think AI is the future. And, okay. and uh, if, if you don't get on board, you know, now you could use your train analogy. The train wins. <laughs> well, un- unfortunately, I could nerd out on this topic for hours, but we are out of time. Ed, thank you so much for joining us today. Ed Niger is co-managing partner of ASK LLP, and he has a shiny new head of the firm's mass towards practice. But before that, it was him. He's on Twitter at Edward Niger, and on LinkedIn, we'll post links to his and ASK's websites and social media on the show's website under today's episode notes. Business Disrupted is hosted by me, Ted Gavin. Our executive producer is Robert Chalino. Our audio engineer is Aaron Keller. Our theme song and other original music are by The Mysterious, Breakmaster Cylinder. Branding by Peg Fitzpatrick and PMG Group. PR and social media by Carol Lunger, Emily Stern, and ABNC Creative. You can find episode guides, show notes, and sign up for our newsletter at our website at disrupted.business. Email your thoughts to contact at disrupted.business. You've been listening to Business Disrupted on Voice America Business and the World Talk Radio Network. Thank you. 
Thank you for tuning in to Business Disrupted. Be sure to join Ted Gavin for another edition of the program and some more great stories next Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until we speak again, have a great week.